Hi there, it's Joy Foster, founder of Tech Fixies, and I'm delighted you're joining us today on the Sparkle and Thrive podcast. I have a very special guest for you today. Uh, Rachel Carroll of Kuru Kids is here with me. I heard her speak on uh, Jimmy McLaughlin's podcast, which of course I've interviewed Jimmy recently in the Playing Big series, and I just was blown away by her vision, her dreams, her goals, and also her heart for how she hires uh, people and brings them on board. So um, first of all, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited that you're part of our Playing Big series. Oh, what a cool theme. I'm excited to be here. One of the things we talked about in the beginning of the Playing Big series was how sometimes in order to play big, you have to play small. And uh, that means doing the small things that get the ball rolling uh, so that you can eventually play big. Tell me about your story, your journey, how you got to where you are now and uh, how that all started out. I love this theme because I very much believe that everything builds on each other. And, you know, the, the old story of, two people laying bricks and one of them thought of themselves as just laying bricks and the other one thought of themselves as building a cathedral you know it's just a brick but the story we tell ourselves and other people about the brick can be completely different and help us really understand why we're doing it and great things come from that I think and um, I mean I started off I I had a career in professional services I um got a very lucky break and got to um, take over a company which was already doing well and got to build it and grow it. So that was all really, really good training ground. And, uh, and I had this kind of, you know, solid, kind of reliable professional services career. And then, and then I had a baby and um, realized that childcare was just awful. The system didn't exist, really. It had so many problems. I noticed that so many of my friends were suffering from it too. And So I decided to take the leap and that was really about going all the way back to square one, you know, and I went from this life where, you know, I was very lucky. I I worked as a management consultant. I used to fly business class, you know, I didn't pay for it. Someone else paid for it, but I was living that lifestyle. And I went from that all the way back to we, our very first office, which we got free from Camden council, um, the tables kind of fell over if you sat at them too vigorously and the toilets would block. And it was just, it couldn't have been more humble. It was in the middle of Camden and it was freaking brilliant. It had the most, it had lots of different companies all in this big kind of, it was an abandoned hospital really to give you the visual. It was an abandoned hospital and it was, you know, dirty and like exposed wires were poking out and the walls were crumbling and all this stuff. And it was scheduled to be demolished in a few months. Camden had this brilliant idea of why don't we just let some startups be there? So I felt grateful to be there. But um, my very first weekends training nannies, which was the heart of the business, I would, I would make them pizza, you know, I would be cleaning up. But even now, I, you know, I had my exec team um, around actually to my house for a meeting because it was during a, um, during a kind of not lockdown, but a closed down period. And, um, and halfway through one of the one of the guys had stepped outside and he, he was um, he was tracking mud. He didn't actually notice that he'd been tracking mud through my house. And we were in the middle of a strategy session. And, you know, to put this in context, I've raised 14 million pounds for my startup, right? I'm the CEO of a 14 million pound startup. But we were in the middle of a strategy session. I was like, oh, can we just take a two minute break? 
And I went and got the vacuum cleaner and was like vacuuming the, the dirt that he had not noticed that he had tracked through. And it was, I was at that moment thinking, I wonder how many CEOs <laughs> do that. And I think it's, it is really important to be able to go back to the kind of start to go back to the small and the humble, because that's where you get close to your customers and close to the problem and close to the detail. And all of that is, I think, totally essential. I just love that story. And I think it's so true. I mean, I've heard so many stories of the startup phase and what people had to do. And I remember one story I heard where she was bringing the investors around to kind of meet the team, but the team didn't exist. And she had to call in all of her friends and like set them up with their laptops in like the basement <laughs> of someone's house, you know, so that they could kind of see what they were all busy doing. And it, I, and it's so interesting because she could see herself doing that. She just wasn't there yet. And she knew if she had the investment, she could do that and create that. And she went on to be one of the most successful female entrepreneurs in the UK. So I love those stories. That's so true. And I definitely went through that stage of, of referring to myself as we all the time, even though it was just me. I remember at one point, I remember writing an email to a customer and I knew it was the kind of email that should be automated, but we hadn't built that automation yet. So I was trying to write it as though I were, as though I were an automated robot <laughs> so that they wouldn't think, oh, that's really weird. I mean, these days, of course, we try to make everything feel as personalized as possible. But weirdly, in the early days, I was trying to imply that we had some kind of tech. Well, I remember when Dame Stephanie Shirley had to, she wasn't getting any traction. Uh, she changed her name to Steve to get that traction. And um, the other person that I know did something similar. I was just re-listening to her book, Believe It by Jamie Kern Lima. And she said that her middle name was Marie. And she, she, what she realized was when she was trying to get PR slots, that people were kind of ignoring the, the, the emails that were coming from her directly. So she then created Marie, who was the customer service rep, but also the, um, you know, the, the, the PR person. And so Marie would reach out and sing the praises of Jamie and get Jamie a talking slot on TV or in the news. And I thought, that's so brilliant. I need to, hire, you know, I need to bring in an Elizabeth onto the tech pixies team i love that i love that it's actually i think it's in the, the cheryl sandberg book lean in i think there's a there's a wonderful tip which is um if you feel awkward singing your own praises team up with a friend and agree to sh to sing each other's um which works if you're in a workplace but i think it also works as a founder you know, you can, um, if you have a buddy and every time you meet someone, you talk about how amazing the other person is. And if they do the same, uh, amazing things can happen. Well, and that's a great point because when you are going from playing small to playing big and you are moving through those phases of pure fear and adrenaline and um, sleep deprivation. I mean, there's so many phases you go through as you go from an idea that you plant as a seed to becoming, you know, this big, big, you know, movement or change in the world. So uh, how do you push through those um, different feelings that come up along the way? What kinds of feelings have come up for you as you've gone to play big? A lot. I mean, I've been doing this for five years now, so I've gone through a lot of bits. Um, definitely intense nervousness. I mean, I've been at some key moments, like like I remember one when I was sitting in a cafe and I was I was having a one to one with one of my team, but I knew that the investment committee was meeting at that moment in that hour to determine whether or not we were getting a ten million pound investment, 
And I had someone in the, the associate on the investment committee was there and I knew she would WhatsApp me if they needed any quick replies to questions. And so I was doing this meeting, but at the same time had my WhatsApp, WhatsApp open and I just felt just just ill <laughs> just like I, it just felt like such a high stakes moment so there's definitely been those like slight and, and you know luckily we got it that's the end of the story it's cool but there have been these sliding doors moments but there haven't been that many of those moments there's been a few of them and sometimes it's gone my way and sometimes it hasn't I mean that story was one where it went my way uh just the the nature of fundraising and the nature of any sales is you get a lot more no's than yeses so there's been a, a hell of a lot of rejection. And that is often actually something that people don't realize. I think looking from the outside, you know, you, you always see our successful PR and, you know, the investment we do get. And, uh, you know, I don't bother to write detailed blog posts about all the things we try that don't work, but believe me, there are lots. So, so, so there's been a lot of like, like little disappointments and things. I think there've been moments of incredible high pride I think the biggest point of pride, I mean, the service, any, anything from customers is just the absolute best. Like hearing that you've changed a family's lives and a nanny's life. I remember a nanny saying, um, several nannies actually saying, we, we profoundly helped them get through lockdowns because the only human contact they had was with the kids that they were looking after. They were, I, I, a, a sentence I'll never forget is, um, they were the only humans I was allowed to hug for a year you know so you hear that you hear the difference you make to careers that's incredible and then um the other the other thing that just gives me the most pride ever is the team that I've brought together and just when you see them doing stuff that you would never have thought of and you know it's just it's just amazing and the and the kind of team spirit that they all have um but yeah it's it's I haven't had that much fear I know you mentioned fear before and when you said it I was thinking have I had that much fear? I think I've had annoyance, disappointment, a hell of a lot of nervousness. <laughs> They've been the, the main emotions. Yeah. And that's really interesting to talk to different people about the things that they've had to push through uh, and what it is that they've pushed through. And also, I think um, I think a sign of someone who does play big is someone who, if they do feel the fear, they, they push through it anyway. And actually, you've already reframed fear. You, ha- you don't have that in the same way that other people do. And I think that's also important is to understand how you're framing things, how you're talking about things and what that means to you. Um, I think that's so important. I'm a huge fan of this. I think I'm trying to not say this because what, what I want to say is judgy. And I'm trying to think what's the non-judgy way, but I'm just going to say the judgy way. I think there's too much of this around. <laughs> that's the judgy thing I was trying to not say. I think... I think a lot of people experience stress as a undiluted negative, you know, when people say, oh, I'm, I'm too stressed. There's this kind of like immediate, like, oh, I'm too stressed. I need to do some self-care or I'm too stressed. Like it's like, it's a thing that you need to get rid of. And I think you can mentally reframe it. If you imagine one, one way that I really like is thinking of yourself or, or thinking of someone as like a top elite sports person, not me, but you know, I imagine you were like a high performance athlete and you're about to go on the field for, you know, a massive football game or something. And you're feeling like amped up and nerves, like in that moment, uh, what, are you, what are you feeling? Well, you're feeling like nervousness, anxiety, stress but you're probably not framing it as like, oh, I must get rid of this feeling. I must like go and have a bath or something, right? And like get some candles. No, you're framing that 
as like, yeah, like this is this this is the fuel that I need right now to do the thing that I need to do. So I like to think of it like that. I think framing can be really important. That's really interesting. My husband, you you might not know this, but my husband's an Olympic gold medalist. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> and so he definitely knows what it's like to have those nerves and then just, you know, but one of the things he always said right before they won the gold medal and he, he missed out on the gold by the same amount that he won the gold by uh, in two consecutive Olympics. So he got the bronze medal in one Olympics and he missed it by this much. And then he won the gold medal in the next Olympics and, and he won it by this much. And, you know, the, the, the emotions that went into sort of winning it versus losing it or losing it versus winning it were huge. Um, but he said he, he remembers when they were on the start line for the time that they thought they were going to win the gold, which was in Sydney with Steve Redgrave and James Cracknell and Matthew Pinson. He said, we knew that if we just did what we needed to do, we would win. Like they, they just knew they had every, they knew they could do it. And there's that huge confidence there that, that they had done everything they could possibly do. And they'd worked as hard as they possibly could work. And, um, you know, and I think actually it was their loss in uh, his, my husband's loss four years prior in Atlanta that fueled him so much. He didn't want to be in the, you know, there's nothing wrong with being bronze, but when you believe you're good enough to be gold and then you take home a bronze, there's that aching in your heart. And there's, there's a real chance you're not going to be able to get a second chance. And so he was quite lucky to get a second chance. Um, wow, that's so cool. Now I feel like an idiot for talking about this. No, it's a great thing. So, so much more than, than I do. That's, a, that's an amazing story. But it's a great thing to talk about because I, I was also a, an, an athlete. So I was on the U.S. archery team and I lived at the Olympic Training Center and I trained for both the um, Athens Olympics and the Beijing Olympics, but I didn't make the team. And it's really interesting because the reframing of my nerves, I was... I was unable when it came down to when push came to shove and I needed to be in the top three to make the Olympic team or in the top two to make the Olympic team. I just couldn't get over the nerves. I couldn't reframe the nerves. So what you're talking about is so interesting because I have had to spend many, many years reframing uh, everything uh, as I move into business. And I remember my dad used to say when I was really struggling as an athlete, um, you know, a rower before, you know, before I did archery, but I was, I was always trying to strive for some athletic, you know, thing. And he would say, joy, there's gold medalists in the business world too. You know, he'd, he kind of knew I was probably more leaning towards the business world than the athletic world. And I, and it was really funny because I really wanted to be the athlete. I really wanted to be the gold medal athlete, the Olympic athlete. And in the end, it, it, that wasn't the, that wasn't the path at that point in my life. And so being able to channel that into business. And I did feel like I suddenly I felt like I had so much more control in business than I had in archery, you know, where you've, I had no control over the wind. I had no control over the other competitors. I had no control over my coach. I had no control over my training program. There was a lot I didn't have control over. And suddenly I became the boss of my own business and I had control of everything, the colors, the tagline, the logo, the product, the delivery, the, you know, if I wanted to work the 90 hour week to deliver the product, I could do it, even though that's not super healthy. But I, the point is, is that I had control and I felt like I could really build on that. Whereas in, as an athlete, I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had that control. And my husband did feel like he had the control. So I think sports is a great analogy for it because most people in their life will have 
tried to do something sporty at some point and they'll either have it'll either have worked or not worked and I guess the point is if it works you get you celebrate that and if it doesn't work you go okay what can I learn from this and how can I apply it to something else but um that's so cool and I imagine I I know almost nothing about archery but I just I'm just imagining that like nerves I mean you need to be particularly controlled and particularly still right like it's just it's a it see it strikes me as the kind of sport where like nerves could have an outsize impact yeah well it was so funny because I did archery for such a long time and you learn how to really zen yourself and you know get rid of those nerves and you know to really feel the shot and then I remember when I finally gave up archery, I switched to triathlon just to kind of like keep doing something competitive. And I remember my very first triathlon, I got in the pool and I was like a caged lion, like, and I just, I swam as fast as I could. And like, you know, and I just, it just came out, you know, cause I had spent so many years repressing those nerves and like being calm, but actually in many ways, um, being able to be calm and being able to, you know, not panic in a situation that is something I did learn how to do I might not have you know when I was up against the world number one at the world cup in Korea I might not have been able to keep my nerves then but I think it's it's one of those things where you the more you do it the better you get at it and I think one of the big lessons I learned was and now I know uh, outside of that world is to not beat yourself up you know I think I did a lot of beating myself up you know for for how come I couldn't handle the nerves? How come I couldn't deal with that? How come I couldn't? And just was always upset with myself for not being able to do what I wanted to do. Whereas in business, I think I've had to totally shift that. And you can probably speak to this too, where I, I'm always looking for the wins. I'm always looking for, okay, what did we accomplish today? How did we move the needle forward today? Okay, maybe we didn't get what we wanted to do, or maybe we didn't do what we wanted to get what we wanted to get or do what we wanted to do. But where's the win in, in the day? Because if we can feel like we're winning as we're climbing this mountain, before we know it, we're going to be at the top of the mountain. And that was someplace I just couldn't get to as an athlete, but I've been able to get to as a business person. The parallels are just so interesting. Like I've, I spend a lot of time thinking about how much calmness, like how, what's the optimum level of calm, and especially when you're managing a team, because there's, there's again this kind of idea that like panic is bad and a calm, a calm manager is best. Well, that's probably generally right but not if they're so calm that they don't convey any urgency, right? And, you know, startups, particularly loss-making startups with enormous growth targets, which is us, um, like we have to have an extraordinary sense of urgency, but you don't want to tip that over into creating bad stress because, you know, not, not all stresses. So, so I think a lot about that balance and kind of how to, um, how to strike the right um yeah the right balance um I'm not sure I've got it but it's it's just something I think about almost every day actually yeah I think you're right and it, when you're managing people I think that was one of the funny things and you one of the things I loved about your interview with Jimmy and I will put the link to Jimmy's interview you talked about an employment process and you have a very unique employment process and I think people should go listen to that episode to go deeper into your employment process but you really um, have some steps people have to go through before you even look at their CV, before you even do a de detailed in-depth interview. Can you give us a brief overview of that? Because I think it's so yeah. powerful. I love this. It's one of my favorite topics. And I got to say, I am, I am actually increasingly evangelical about what we're doing because um, we only just, we really started experimenting with it hard about six months ago. 
And with every month that goes past, and we're hiring tons at the moment, but I can do a quick plug, by the way, operations, marketing, engineering, product, we're hiring in all those. So you should definitely look at our career site. But um, with every month that goes past and incredible people join our team, I'm seeing the impact that doing this makes. And I'm seeing, I mean, our people were always, were always good, honestly, but like, we seem to be able to right now find unbelievable people at scale, which is incredible. So the, yeah, the summary of it is um, we try to remove as much bias as possible from the process. And the theory is just that, you know, if you can, your, your biases about people are stopping, are preventing you from hiring really great people. They're distracting you. They're taking up time. So if you're, let's say you you find someone who reminds you of yourself or your sister or something uh, or who went to the same institution as you natural human biases you're likely to you're more likely to want to interview them and when you do interview them you're more likely to have a lovely chat talk about your co your common ground yeah you'll ask them some work questions you'll like them and then let's say you hire them and what's happened there is you've overlooked so many people who are um, actually better performers for and a better fit for that particular role and uh, anyway, so what we do is um, we remove that we don't look at names and we don't look at CVs, we don't look at institutions. We start off with asking a small number, like three to five questions. And every single one of the, we think really carefully about the questions and all of them are aimed at um, getting at replicating the actual job in some way. Um, so all, pretty much every job involves writing something at some point. So we just take the, the written bits of the job and we put them, make them as the application. Then we, we, the applications come in and we separate all the answers from each other and from the names and everything. And then we blind mark them. Um, ideally, we double blind mark them. And then we, then we interview only the top scorers. And what that means is that you know, the person who reminds you of your sister might not get an interview, but like 10 other people or whatever um, might get an interview. And at that point, we then, we then, there's other stuff we do differently too. But like, I think the, I think the upfront blind hiring is the thing that I think has made the biggest difference actually. Yeah. And I think that's such an important thing. We, we do, you also speak about doing a task before you move on and we do a task as well. And we learned very fast that actually, you can give a bunch of people the same task and you'll get some key winners really fast and, and you'll be able to, you know, really separate people out based on what you want them to do. And um, I, I really value that, that task orientated approach. Uh, one of the things about playing big that, that women struggle with, quite frankly, is hiring people and finding the money to hire them. Uh, so one of the things, the, way they, the ways that you've solved that is by raising money so that you can then hire people to build this mega company that you know you can build. What's the, uh, you know, what's the advice for people who are nervous about hiring their first employee and taking that first step to, to play a little bit bigger? I think you can do a lot before you take the plunge. Um, so one thing I did very early on when it was just me and I was still playing around with ideas and I didn't have any investment at all um, was I went to uh, in London, UCL, a great university. They happened to have a really excellent careers um, department and I got an intern from there. And the reason that particular one was great is because they had a scheme where they would pay for the intern. So I didn't want an unpaid intern. I wanted to make sure they got paid. 
um, but I also didn't want to pay them. <laughs> and so this for me was like a really good scheme. So there are, the, there are these schemes out there. I'm not sure if that particular one is running anymore because that was five years ago. But you, you basically my advice would be try and find some kind of scheme and um, see if you can find um, uh, some really, you know, great, great, bright interns. There's a lot of wonderful people out there. That's one thing. I think also I'm a big fan of trying people out um, before you hire them. So if you can bring them in on a short term, like freelance or contract basis, I think that is a really good way for both sides to figure out whether this is something they want to do. It's great for the other person as well. It can be quite tough if they're already in a full time job. Um, but even then, um, sometimes they might be able to, you know, do something in the evening or something at the weekend or whatever. So I think there are like, you just have to get a little bit more creative. Um, but I did all, all the things that I just mentioned. I did all of those in the early days. Yeah. Well, I remember when I got my first employee, I had a grant, I applied for a local grant and I got their, you know, I got the first 1500 pounds of their salary covered by a grant, which I think was important. Actually, um, I, forgot, I did that one too. Yeah. I forgot about that. I got an Innovate UK grant. Um, early on, which was really helpful. Yeah. And I think people don't realize that there are a lot of grants out that there, that there is a lot of funding out there. Um, your local uh, enterprise partnership, your LEP, will they'll have information on that. And, you know, that's where I did my first business course, you know, funded by the local Oxford, you know, enterprise partnership. So I think it's, uh, I think it's 100% possible to find things that you're looking for. You have to sort of know what you're looking for. But um, I think if there's anyone listening to this and they're thinking, okay, well, where do I start? They just got some great tips. Uh, I could talk to you forever. And of course, we don't have forever. Um, but I do want to um, just thank you for your time. And also, uh, as you do, you have any parting comments or thoughts on what it's like to play big? Um, I know you're in the middle of playing big right now. And, uh, you know, you you've you've got this investment, you're moving forwards. So what's the kind of thing that you're telling yourself every day? Uh, or that's motivating you every day as you move forwards? I think it's just never stop learning. I, I think every, everything you do is an opportunity to learn about what your customers want, how your product could be better, how you could pitch better to investors, how you could recruit better. Like, I think it's just always be learning. The biggest, the single biggest factor that I see make the difference between founders who succeed and founders who fail is the founders that succeed just have this constant hunger for feedback. They're seeking it out. What, how, what did you think? How could it be better? They want brutal, honest, you know, negative. They're looking for the negative. They don't get their, their ego is not at risk. Um, and the opposite, I, which I see sometimes is people being a bit defensive or trying to avoid it. Um, so I think if you can avoid doing that um, and, and be like a sponge for learning, that is the single greatest source of propulsion. Yeah, that is such, oh, such great advice. I love that. And of course, that gives me a lot of confidence and hope because I am one of those nonstop learners. Um, I love learning. And, and we at Tech Pixies, we often say once people come in through our program, they become, you know, learning junkies because they get so excited about the next thing to learn. Ah, great advice. Well, I really appreciate your time and, uh, you know, wish you the absolute best of luck. Can you share with people how they can find you and what kind of services you offer in case they're interested not only in working for you but possibly using your services yeah so we offer um child services um after school uh we started in london we're now live in five other cities let's see if i can brighton birmingham another b 
Bristol, Manchester, Surrey and Hertfordshire. We are um, just launching a second service which helps people set up small home nurseries in their own homes, um, which is incredible if anyone listening to this uh, is thinking about going back to work, but also has a small child, is feeling torn, you should definitely check out our website. And uh, we're recruiting loads. So to find that, people should Google Koru Kids, K-O-R-U Kids uh, Careers, and you'll find our careers website. Oh, brilliant. Well, I hope you get a few tech pixies applying. I think it would be an amazing place to work. And again, thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye.